All right, church, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, uh, go ahead and open up to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. <clears throat> this morning, um, we're going to be looking at the guide to Christian living um, and specifically the Christian's roadmap. And so um, the idea is that we kind of need a guide. And that's true in most cases, most instances of life, especially if you're trying something new or if you're going into uncharted ter- territory. Um, for example, my family, a lot of times in the summer, especially, we take opportunities that we have to go hiking. And my five-year-old daughter, Cortland, always is in charge of the maps. She loves maps. And so it makes the adventure even more adventuresome when your five-year-old is in charge of the map, when you're hiking through the woods. And then when she's in charge, we also have to stop for her to put on her makeup and her fake nails and all that in the middle of the woods. And so it's a really fun adventure, but it helps to have a map, right? A few weeks ago, our family was in, on vacation in uh, Navarre, Florida. And so uh, my father-in-law and my brother-in-law and I rented a uh, fishing charter for the day. And we went out and we did some fishing, uh, some saltwater fishing. And so it was really helpful to have a guide with us, a guide that knew where to go fishing because I don't know where to go fishing in Navarre, Florida. Um, but the guide knew exactly where to go and where to take us to, to get us to the fish. And he knew the routes and he knew um, where we were and what kind of, even what was underneath the water. And so he knew the water really intimately. And so God has given us this precious gift, um, which is his word. And he's given us his word so that we can have that roadmap, so that we can have that guide, so that we don't get lost and so that we know how to handle certain situations when they come up. And it's very specific um, and very detailed for us. And so we know that the Word of God, Hebrews tells us, is living and that it's active and it um, divides what's spiritual and what's not spiritual. And so Psalm 1 kind of focuses on the Word of God and then what to do um, with the Word of God and how to apply it to our lives. So um, Psalm chapter 1, and I will get there with you. Um, We're going to read the entire six verses. It reads, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. May God add his blessing and favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. If you would join me just as we ask God to bless this time in the word together this morning. So Father, we do thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that it is precious um, and that it is true and it is inerrant and it is infallible. And so we pray that you would speak to us this morning. We pray that Hebrews would be true in our lives, that the word of God, your word, would divide what's spiritual and what's not. It would separate the unspiritual from, from the spiritual in our lives and that we would be drawn to the spiritual because of you. We pray that you would appropriate your Holy Spirit throughout this message. We pray that we would see Jesus and him only. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 1 is a fitting introduction for the uh, book of Psalms in that it summarizes two ways that humanity can live, um, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. 
It may be classified as a wisdom psalm because it has emphasis on these two ways of life. It uses similes, it uses the announcement of blessing, um, and it uses the centrality of the law of God to, as the fulfillment of life. Uh, the motifs in this psalm recur again and again throughout the psalms. And wisdom psalms make a strong contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And that's what we see here in this psalm. We see that there are two distinct ways to live, and they are starkly contrasted in Psalm chapter 1. And I want to read you this quote about Psalm chapter 1. It says, uh, Though this psalm is short in size, it is long in spiritual lessons. It begins where we all hope to end. It may well be called the Christian's guide, for it reveals the quicksands where the wicked sink down in perdition and the firm ground on which the saints tread the path to glory. And so I love that because it tells us that we have, if we follow this psalm, there's two options. And one is sure and it's steadfast and it's true. And the other is like quicksand and it's sinking and it's not secure and it's not a strong foundation at all. And so as we look at this psalm this morning, I want to give you guys four different things that we see in this passage and then two really practical things that we can do throughout the week. And I know that's six things, but I'm going to be really quick and I think you can still beat the Methodist church to lunch, okay? So um, the first one is this. It's the conduct of obedience, the conduct of obedience. And this is, um, we see this in verse one. We see that the, the, the way that the righteous man is walking, the blessed man is walking, he's walking in a way that's obedient to God. And we know in the New Testament, in Jesus' teachings, he says, if you love me, then you're going to obey me. And so there is the standard to the Christian life that we are going to walk in obedience. And we see it all throughout scripture. We see it in the Old Testament, we see it in the New Testament, and it flows out of not what we can do in and of ourselves, but what God has done for us and what God is doing in us, and that he will continue to perfect us and sanctify us and make us more and more like him as life goes on, and ultimately we're with him in glory. And so when we think about the gospel, we know that the gospel is really good news. In fact, that's literally what the word gospel means. It means good news. But the reason that the gospel is such great news is that there's some really bad news that comes along with it. And the really bad news is that we have all sinned. That's why we we take time to do the confession of sin every week. And I loved what Lydia said this morning, that the person to your right is a sinner, the person to your left is a sinner, and so you can just relax because we're all sinners. We're all in the same boat together. But the really good news is that God is so gracious. God loves us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross so that that sin could be covered by his blood, so that that sin no longer has to rule our lives. And that's why the Apostle Paul says we're not slaves to sin anymore, but we're slaves to righteousness because of what Christ has done. That's why Romans 8, 1 tells us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we, we still, though, as Christians struggle with this walking in obedience. And, and I, I would venture to say that nobody in the room would say that we've got it all together and that we're always obedient and we never mess up and, we, and we're always perfect and we're always doing exactly what we're supposed to be doing. But I think that we would say we're sinners, but we're saved by grace. And God empowers us to become more and more like Jesus, the more and more we fall in love with him. And so there is this struggle in our lives of 
what that looks like practically, that we're, we're sinners, but God has done a great work in us. He's made us a new creation. He's called us saints, and he he's, uh, sees Christ when he looks at us instead of our sin. And I want to read to you a passage about um, Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, who wrote a letter to a Christian friend of his who was really struggling with feelings of guilt um, over some really bad advice that this friend had given to someone. And so when Luther heard about this, this is what he wrote to him. He said, my faithful request and admonition is that you join our company and associate with us who are real great and hard-boiled sinners. You must by no means make Christ to seem partly and trifling to us as though he could be our helper only when we want to be rid from imaginary, nominal, and childish sins. Luther says, no, no, that would not be good for us. We must rather be a, he must rather be a savior and redeemer from real, great, grievous, and damnable transgressions and iniquities. Yea, from the very greatest and most shocking sins to be brief, from all sins added together in grand total. Luther says, Dr. Stalpitz comforted me on a certain occasion when I was a patient in the same hospital and suffering the same affliction as you by addressing me thus. You want to be a painted sinner and accordingly to have a painted savior. You will have to get used to the belief that Christ is a real savior and you are a real sinner. And so I think that's a lot of what the gospel has for us, is, it is that, yes, you are a real sinner, but God is a real Savior. And because of that, it's not just, you know, socially acceptable sins, but he saved us and redeemed us from everything. And because of that, we can walk in obedience. Because of that, Psalm 1, verse 1, can be, a reality in our lives. And we can walk in obedience. We can walk not in the counsel of the wicked, but we can be a blessed man or woman who's living in obedience to God because we love him. This isn't just some philosophy about life that's imaginary or a pie in the sky kind of philosophy, but this is what makes life work. This is why this is called the guide for Christian living, because this makes life work. The gospel makes life work. So in verse 1, we see the conduct of the man, and then the word blessed here, blessed literally means one who enjoys God's favor and God's grace. Doesn't that sound wonderful if you could say, I am a blessed man, I am a blessed woman, and that means that I enjoy God's favor and God's grace. But I think way too many Christians aren't living like that on a day-to-day basis. We go through life and we don't feel God's favor, we don't feel blessed, and I think it may be because we've forgotten this truth of the gospel and what it means to love him and walk in obedience to him. Um, So how do we do this? How do we walk in obedience? This is a practical wisdom psalm, and the psalmist explains both what we're to do and what we're not to do. And so we're supposed to avoid some certain uh, lifestyles and not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And so if you notice the way the psalm progresses here, the verb progression in the psalm, we see kind of a progression of of what happens uh, when, when we're tempted to sin. And so first, the verb the psalm uses, the psalmist uses is walk. And so he says, walk not in the counsel of the wicked. And so this is that kind of idea that you're just a passerby and you're kind of taking notice. And you kind of say, hmm, 
that's that's interesting or or that might be something that I would like to try or that might be a lifestyle that makes sense or that might be a philosophy or a world view that makes sense. It's just that you're kind of taking notice. And then the next verb that the psalmist uses is stand. And so this kind of has the idea of hesitation, has considering being influenced by the way of the wicked. And so you're kind of standing and you're kind of pondering the decision and you're kind of thinking, would this be something in my life that's enjoyable? Would this be something in my life that makes sense? Would this be something that offers me happiness? And so then the next verb the psalmist uses is sit down. And this literally means that you've settled down into a way of lifestyle. You've settled down into some sin or to some habit that dishonors God. And so then we must not walk in sin, but we must realize that we have a real Savior who has really redeemed us from these things. And because of that, we can't continue to walk in that sin so I read this, I'm reminded of the story of Joseph in the Old Testament when Potiphar's wife grabbed him and um, he said, how could I sin against my God? He didn't say, how could I sin against Potiphar or how could I sin against you? But he said, how could I sin against my God? So Joseph in the Old Testament gets this idea that when we sin, it's a sin against God. David gets this in Psalm 51 when he confesses his sin before the Lord. He had committed great sins, and other people were involved. Um, Bathsheba was involved. Her husband was involved. It affected an entire kingdom that David is in charge of. And when he prays, he prays and he says, God, against thee and thee only have I sinned. And so David's not saying other people aren't affected or he hasn't done them wrong. He's saying what matters most is that I have sinned against a holy God. I am a real sinner and you are a real holy God, but thankfully he is also a real savior. And so we, um, we see this conduct of obedience in verse one and then in uh, verse two, we see the choice of delight. So the second point is the choice of delight. And so here the psalmist really shifts to the positive. He's not telling us just what we shouldn't do, like we shouldn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but then he's telling us what we should be doing. And what we should be doing is we should be delighting, and we should be delighting in the word of God. Um, His desire is, is for the law of the Lord. It's the word of God. And so our desire should be the same, and it should be something that we delight in, not something that we say, oh, man, i, I got to read my Bible today. Um, but it should be something that we're excited about. We should be excited about spending time with God and having that fellowship with God. And so um, illustrate this today is my wife's birthday. Um, and so this morning, um, we the, the kids and I had, um, we went to, Publix and we got balloons and we got a card and gift and all that. And so came home and and we gave her that stuff. And so now imagine what would happen if we give her her birthday present and she says, oh, thank you so much. I love all of this. You know, you shouldn't have done it. Why did you do this? Imagine what would happen if I said, well, we've been married 12 years now, and I kind of know how it works. You got to do this every year. You know, you got to go get a card, and you got to get a present, and you got to, you know, do all that. And, you know, I felt like I just kind of had to. Um, That wouldn't really honor her, right? That wouldn't really say much about me delighting in her or delighting in our marriage. Um, But if I instead say to her, we wanted to do this to you for you because we love you so much and because you do so much for our 
family and because we just enjoy being with you and spending time and we just want you to be happy and enjoy your day because it's your birthday. That's going to that's gonna honor her a lot more, right? And so the same thing's true in our life with God. We shouldn't say, oh, you know, I can't do that or I have to do this, but we should, we should say, man, I get to spend time with literally the creator of the universe every day, and he speaks to me through his word, and I get to have fellowship with him, and I get to tell him the most intimate and personal details of my life, and he understands it, and he accepts me, and he loves me unconditionally, and when things are really difficult, and when suffering comes into my life, he wraps his loving arms around me, and he reminds me how much he loves me, and when I wander astray, he's just like that father in the parable of the prodigal son. He sees us a long way off, and he runs, and he hugs us, and he gets the ring, and he gets the robe, and he, and he throws a party for us because he can't wait to fellowship for, with us. That's an amazing thing that holy creator God would want to have a relationship with us. And then here we are as humanity walking around. I don't really have time to read my Bible. I don't really have time to pray. Um, And I think it's a lot of times just because we don't get who God is. I think it starts with realizing how great he is. And then we want to spend time with him. We want to delight in his word. And so when we um, when we see this, we, we also see uh, that he says he meditates on it day and night. So what does that mean, meditate, and what does that involve? Um, in the Hebrew, it literally means to speak or to mutter. And so when this is done from the heart, it's called musing or meditation. So meditating on God's word day and night means to speak to yourself the word of God day and night. It means to constantly have that on your, on your thought. As you're going throughout your work day, having, having a scripture, having something on your heart that you're praying about and you're thinking about and you're reminding yourself of. A lot of times when we have our Bible study um, or our small groups, our community groups, we'll pray. And one of the things that we pray for often is that God would remind us of this truth throughout the week, that it wouldn't just be a Sunday morning thing or whenever your community group is, but it's something that's constantly God's bringing to your mind throughout the week. Um, and so God's word can can speak to you in every situation, whether it be just the kind of the mundane, ordinary things of life, or whether it be um, some sort of trial or suffering that you're going through. God's word um, is is always there for us, and we can see new things each time we read God's word. So <clears throat> we also see this choice of delight, but then in verse three we see a character developed, character developed, and so. This is a righteous character that's developed. And the psalmist tells us that this character is like a tree planted by streams of water. So the streams of water spoken of here um, are most likely um, in reference physically to um, canals of irrigation that are common in the land of Egypt and Babylonia. And during this time, the readers of, of this psalm would have been familiar with it, and they would have been familiar with the trees, the fruit trees that were planted by the streams of water. There would be um, especially date trees that were planted by these streams, and the 
planting of these trees by the waterside would have been well known to the Israelites. And um, it's mentioned in several other passages of Scripture as well. Numbers chapter 24, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Jeremiah 17, and Ezekiel chapter 17. And so there's this idea that when you're planted and you're firmly rooted and you're getting the source, which is the water, um, then you're growing and you're bearing fruit. And so a few months ago, Lee uh, came over to my house and helped me plant a a fig tree. And my fig tree, by the way, Lee, is doing very well. Thank you for all of your help. So here's here's kind of the backstory on that, though. Last season, about a year ago before he came over to my house, I planted a fig tree on my own. And when I planted the fig tree on my own, it died. It didn't make it. And so then Lee came, and Lee helped me. He showed me um, a lot of things I didn't know about fig trees. He kind of helped me pick out the best place to plant it. He showed me how big to, uh, to, um, to dig the hole to plant it in, how deep to plant it, um, where to plant it, where it could get the most sun and nutrients that it needed. He showed me how much water to give it. And so since Lee came over and helped me, and it's been firmly planted like it was supposed to be, this fig tree has grown, and it looks healthy, and I'm expecting it to bear fruit. And so that's the same idea that the psalmist has here. When we're not rooted, when we're not grounded like we're supposed to be in the Word of God, in the principles of God's Word, then we're not going to grow, and we're not going to bear fruit, and we're going to wither up. That's why the psalmist at the end of this calls it a chaff who's just blown away by the wind. That was kind of literally like my little fig tree. It never grew, and it just kind of got blown away with the wind. But when we're planted and we are firmly rooted, then we're going to grow, and we're going to flourish, and we're going to bear fruit, and we're going to live this extraordinary life that God promises us to do. And so I think a a way to do that is um, some good advice that Dr. Charles Stanley at First Baptist Atlanta gives. He says that we should obey God and leave the consequences up to him. I love that because it's so simple and so direct, and yet it's so profound. When you just obey God, then you can leave all the consequences up to him. You don't have to worry about what people think. You don't have to worry about what happens. You don't have to worry about the fall out. You're just obedient to to the one who has saved you, who has redeemed you, and you're living. That's what I think this verse 3 is all about. When we're bearing fruit, it's obeying God, and it's leaving the consequences up to him. It's trusting him. And so then in verses 4 through 6, we see the consequence of relationship, the consequence of relationship. And so here's where that the psalmist really makes the turn and makes that sharp contrast between the righteous and the wicked in verses 4 and 5, and then gives us a really strong conclusion in verse 6. So he says, The wicked are not like the righteous tree planted by the streams of water. Instead, they are like chaff that is carried away by the wind. (coughs) Excuse me. And the chaff is literally a dead or a rootless plant. And this word is used throughout all of Scripture as an emblem of what is weak, and what is worthless. We see this all the way from Job to Daniel um, to Matthew and Luke and the other Gospels. And in ancient times, this chaff was considered of no value at all. And when the corn was winnowed, it was thrown up into the air until the wind would blow all of the chaff away. And so the wicked are blown away in the wind just in the same way. And so the psalmist is saying, if you're not rooted by the streams of water, if you're not grounded, if you're not meditating on the word of God day and night, then you're going to be like that chaff. You're thrown up in the wind and you're blown away. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, so God, um, God is righteous and he will pronounce judgment upon the wicked and forever be, 
<laughs> excuse me. Thank you, Lydia. Appreciate that. I've been fighting a summer cold this week, so. <clears throat> All right. Thank you. <clears throat> so, who are these people that will suffer the judgment of God and be shut off from the righteousness of God and his people? An ungodly man is simply a man who tries to get through life without God. And so the psalmist gives us really practical ways to walk with God, to go with God, to obey God, and leave the consequences up to him. <clears throat> the wicked are just the opposite of that. The wicked are the ones who are blown away and who just go through life with no regard to God whatsoever. And so I think a lot of times we think of <clears throat> the wicked as someone who's out doing really evil things, and we think, oh, man, I would never do that. I would never go there. I would never say that. And, and the wicked can really just be anyone who doesn't think about God, who doesn't give consideration to God. And in verse 6, we see the final consequence and the final result of one's life who is wrapped up in <clears throat> how he or she will relate to God. And so really the, the guide to your life, how you're going to live your life and how your life is going to end up has to do with how you lived your life relating to God. Will you obey him or will you go through life without him? The two ways are determined simply by how we relate to God. For the righteous, they will be fulfilled. They will live eternally with Christ. And while the wicked are like the chaff, they're blown away and they suffer for, for eternity because they haven't given their life to God. And so I think that <clears throat> there's a couple things that we should do as, as believers. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're not a believer and you're not sure that you buy into Christianity. You're not sure that <clears throat> this is for you. Um, I would challenge you to to really give this con serious consideration because there's really two ways that we can live. And when we get to the end of our life and all is said and done, when we look back, we've really lived one of these two ways. We've either lived for God or we've gone against God. And really that's what the definition of sin is, is that we've gone against God. We haven't been obedient to God. But Christ has come that we may... <clears throat> that we may live for him, that we may live with him, and that we may have eternal life in him. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 tell us that to live the Christian life, all we have to do is believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, and we have to confess that with our mouth. So it's believing in your heart, and then it's confessing that with your mouth. And then <clears throat> Romans chapter 1 tells us, um, this is for those of you who are believers here this morning, to renew our minds. And as we renew our minds, this is where the two practical application steps get in. First thing to do this week is to preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. And by doing that, I just mean that you should remind yourself that you are a real sinner and that he is a real savior. And I think as believers, a lot of times we think about the gospel and we think, heard the gospel, I've, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, I've been saved, I've, I've, I've done that. But the gospel is for everyday living. The gospel is the way that we live out Psalm chapter 1. The gospel is the way that we are a blessed man or we are a blessed woman and we are living for God and we are firmly rooted and we are bearing fruit. So preach the gospel to yourself. And then the second thing is to meditate on God's word throughout the week. And so my challenge for you this week is that you would just 
find a scripture, find a verse, if it's a Bible reading plan or whatever it may be, or find someone in the church who can give you a verse and just focus on that verse and just pray that verse and think about that verse and meditate on that verse this week because he, uh, uh, first, Second Timothy chapter 3 tells us that God's word is literally the breath of God. And so when we meditate on God's word, like the psalmist says, when we have that musing in our heart, then it's literally like God is breathing life into our lives this week. And just imagine if we did those two things, if we preached the gospel to ourselves and we meditated on God's word, imagine what would happen in our lives, how fruitful we would be, how much of a, of a relationship we would have with God, how much of a closeness would be there with God. Imagine what would happen in the life of our church family and in, in the life of our community if we were all preaching the gospel to ourselves and meditating on his word day and night. Imagine every person that you meet throughout the throughout the week, every interaction that you have, every interaction that you have with a family member, or a coworker, or even a casual acquaintance. Imagine how much different those would be because you're gospel-centered, you're gospel-focused, and you're bearing fruit. And imagine what might happen in the communities around here instead of just driving by and kind of going, going throughout life at a fast pace if we stopped time to, and took, took time to care about people and pray for people and pray for the communities around us. Imagine that we might see community transformation. And so <clears throat> I want us to pray that God would just appropriate these truths into our heart, and then we'll um, continue to worship together. So 